Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm excited because today we have someone that is out of the US, uh, which is really lovely. So uh, I guess without further ado, let's say welcome the uh, the guest today. Ray Ready, how's it going? Hi, I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me on the show. So very, very excited to have you on board today. So how was growing up in the Middle East for you? It was, um, growing up in the Middle East was a... Uh, it was definitely a really interesting experience. I think um, we, my, my parents immigrated to Canada when I was in uh, in grade 10. So uh, basically spent most of elementary school, um, elementary school there. It was very different than going to school in North America. I think, um, you know, the main, the, I think childhood and stuff was very, was very normal. Um, and you know, probably somewhat comparable. It was just very hot. Um, but I think from a from a school perspective, I think the focus on how on learning was very different. Um, I think there, you know, it was a lot about content and knowledge and and memorization of things. Um, and I just found that in in North America, it was a it was a different focus on you know on on really on learning and understanding, and the pace was very different. So. It was, uh, you know, that part of it was definitely an adjustment. Got it. So then you go into uh, University of Waterloo, right? And and you did computer science. And then also you did your master's of business and also entrepreneurship and technology. So how was really getting, you know, for the first time uh, present to the world or the idea of, of building stuff? So I, yeah, so um, the, math, the math degree, the math computer science degree I did was, um, you know, I think um, computer science and programming was something that I that I was always interested in growing up, and had had taught myself, you know, uh, a, a lot about it even 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 before university, and and so that was like the the natural progression for me. I think through through school, one of the things that I I wondered about was 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 business like math and engineering in the sense of. Um, the way to approach certain problems in math and engineering, there, there's like a right way and a wrong way to do it. And, you know, if you don't know the right approach to solving very complicated problems, you you, you will likely never get the solution. Um, and what I wasn't sure of, because I, I'd done very little in 
in terms of business and, and, and marketing and things like that. I'd, I'd taken a few courses through undergrad, but hadn't really spent a lot of time um, doing those types of things. And, and what I was really curious about at the end of school was, is business the same way? Is there like definitively a right way and a wrong way to approach, you know, complex problems in, in, in strategy or marketing and, and things like that? And, and I think what I found at the end of it all was the answer is that it's actually very different. Um, it's very different than, um, you know, than math and science. Um, and that it's much more about, about common sense and experience than it is about, um, definitive approaches on how to solve some of these problems. So I think that was, um, you know, that was, that was my main takeaway from, from, from spending, a, uh, spending a year doing uh, business school. So now that, that you've, you know, you, you had this access to business, to resolving problems with that mindset of, of, of computer science and, and also having, you know, perhaps a reviewed or studied some some biographies of, of other founders, why didn't you go straight at it? Why did you go to work for three years at Research in Motion? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, I, I actually don't know, I don't know that I ever really like aspired to be um, an entrepreneur. Like I, I, I liked building things. And um, I remember meeting people that, you know, that said, no matter what, someday I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go build a company or, or they really aspire to do that. I think for me, it, it, it's been less about that. It's always been about, um, about building something and, and building something that I found had purpose and that I, you know, I could really connect to. And, and I've never forced, um, forced ideas or forced, you know, um, le leaving to start a company. I, I think for me, it's always been very organic. And so, you know, the, the default path for me out of school was, um, was just to learn, to find, you know, to find a job. I'd never really worked at, um, you know, in the corporate world before, um, in, in like an, you know, in an operator type role. And so I think for me, it was just getting a sense of like how, how companies and, and businesses really work. And, and, and the first three years were just really learning. Um, and I happened, I happened, you know, to, to end up at BlackBerry and, um, serendipitously, um, ended up learning a whole lot about mobile and how mobile was going to transform computing. And, you know, that was, um, yeah, more, more serendipitous and luck than it was any, uh, you know, any clever plan. Um, yeah. And I think that, that ended up being uh, a sort of really pivotal point in my career because I think um, it, it was really the, the, the birth of, of, of mobile computing in the, in the early 2000s and how it was really going to transform everything you know, over the following decade. And I, I got to, I got to see that transformation, you know, in a, in a, from a very unique viewpoint being, being at BlackBerry in, in, you know, the early to mid two thousands. And your profile, it's a, you know, it, it's remarkable because most of the people that have the engineering background, like, like yourself, they typically perhaps will join like a company or maybe like a startup. And then they have like the CTO or maybe like the software development uh, role, you know, engineer role. And then eventually they transition into either a business role or they become a co-founder and CEO of their next company. But in your case, you went straight into being, you know, corporate strategy at, uh, at BlackBerry. I mean, you were doing M&A, venture investments. I mean, really incredibly shocking no? from, from, for you to go straight at that. 
Yeah, uh, I think for for me, so I had done some I had done some some jobs as an intern where I you know where I, where I did more technical jobs, but but yeah, that's right. My my first real full time job was, you know, had nothing to do with with computer science or, or programming. Um, you know, I, I think I think having a math or engineering background it it gives you um, it gives you the ability to like navigate complex problems and, and, and sort of be able to hold a lot of complexity in your head. And I think, you know, I had, I had no real experience, but I think I had, I I'd learned some good just foundational principles and like how to approach, you know, complicated problems and how to learn quickly. And, and, and really, I think that's all, that's all I really had coming out of school. Um, very little of what I learned had, had any, you know, practical uh, knowledge or, or applicability. And so, so yeah, that's, that's really what I, I, I was really, I think throughout my career, my focus has been where, where can I learn the most? And I've stayed in jobs when I felt I was learning a lot. And, and I often left when I felt like that, that was, um, you know, that was tailing off and I could learn more doing something else. And, and so I think a lot of, a lot of it hasn't like through my career hasn't really been very very planned out and thought through, um, you know, I, I kind of just reevaluate things on short timeframes. And when it feels like I'm learning a lot, then, then I stay and, you know, when, when I'm not, I'm not, and I leave. So then in 2008, you were obviously not learning a lot at BlackBerry because you decided to go out and, and start your own thing. So, so what, what pushed you to, to, to start push life? Yeah. So I think, I think at that point in mobile, um, the, the one thing that I observed was just that, the the mobile phone was starting to consume other portable electronics. So I think it, it became clear at that point that things like portable navigation, you know, portable GPS handheld units, you know, portable media players. I'll, 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 and if you think if you think back ten years ago, you know, th there were a lot of peripheral devices that people had on the go with them, um, and they've all now consolidated into the phone. And I think in in the mid two thousands, I think that was very clear to you know, to a few people, especially people who, who could see the, the trend line in mobile. And, and I think for me, this has always been the reason for me to start, you know, to start a company. It's when I, when I feel like I have a lot of conviction in something. Um, and in this case, it was, you know, the sort of convergence of, of handheld devices into the phone. Um, and when it feels like uh, this is going to happen um, and no one seems to be addressing the problem, uh, and, I, and I think it's a, a meaningful problem to solve, um, that that's when I decide to, you know, to go solve it myself or, you know, build a team of people to, to go after it. And I think that's all that, that really happened. It was, you know, a combination of seeing something that felt like it was going to be a big deal. Um, and, and, and seeing that and looking out into, you know, into the ecosystem and seeing that no one was really paying attention or, or solving this problem and, and decided that, you know, I would, I would learn more, even if I wasn't successful, that I would learn more trying to solve this problem than I would, you know, staying put and doing what I'd done for the last three years. And it was obviously successful because it was acquired by Google, but we'll, we'll get into that in a, in a little bit. What was the, uh, what was the founding theme of, of push life? Yeah, it was, you know, it was, it was a time prior to the iPhone. And, um, what, what I believed was that all, all portable, um, all portable media players would, would basically be consumed by the phone. And the challenge was not the the phone's capability to play media. Um, it was that the consumer experience of getting uh, music and content between 
um, you know, at, at the time the cloud didn't really exist, so everyone had all of their content stored locally on 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 their, um, you know, on their their computers. And and getting getting that to your phone was a difficult thing to do, and and that's kind of the problem we focused on was building um, building an experience that made it very easy for for people to move content back and forth between their phone and and their computers, specifically music. Um, music had just gone DRM free in two thousand and eight, which was a, a big change. Um, and we built a consumer experience that, um, you know, was it basically made normal phones and it gave it an iPod-like experience on on Android, BlackBerry, you know, Nokia, and all all of the handsets that mattered at the time. Um, you know, and it was interesting how different the world of mobile was. Um, you know, going back, if you go back ten years, Nokia had forty percent market share. Um, you know, BlackBerry had something like twenty percent market share. Um, and the iPhone was less than one percent. Uh, so it was. It was. Uh, you know, we were basically building a media experience for ninety-nine percent of handsets that that weren't the iPhone at the time. And it's incredible how quickly the world changed. It is. It is. I mean, it's it's really unbelievable. I mean, BlackBerry. I, I remember at that point, every single person, at least here in New York City, everyone had a BlackBerry. And then all of a sudden, in a couple of years, like everything changed so rapidly that everyone had an iPhone and nobody cared anymore about BlackBerry. Yeah, I th and I think that was, you know, that 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 it is. I think what I really took away from that experience is how quickly in technology, how quickly the world can change, and it it can sometimes it feels like things are taking a long time, and then and, and that's the funny thing about exponential, you know, exponential curves is that it it sometimes can feel like it's taking a long time, but as soon as you you get into the uh, you know, uh, a certain part of the curve, it just feels like the world changes overnight. And, and that's what it felt like in, in mobile. It felt like, you know, in the span of four or five years, we went from, um, like it went from a, um, a very diverse ecosystem. I mean, back, back in the day, building apps for phones was a big problem. There were like four or five different platforms you had to build for. There were, you know, there was a lot of tooling and infrastructure and how to deploy, an app across so many different platforms, and and when it converged into a a two-platform world, it it fundamentally changed how you know how mobile computing works, and, and with the app stores and, and things like that. So, yeah, the, the world changed very very fast. Got it. And the um and and as well, let me ask you this here: what what was a what ended up being here the business model, and how were you guys monetizing? So we ended up licensing our software to carriers. So so at the time, it it, it was a it was an there was a lot of interesting changes happening in content. So in the in the mid two thousands, um, carriers had had sold. And again, this was one of the big changes. Um, when when mobile was very um, diverse, when there were a lot of different phone platforms, um, people were actually more loyal to the carrier than they were to a handset brand. People would actually switch. Um, you know, handset brands all the time. They'd switch between BlackBerry and something else, and and try the iPhone, and uh, you know, so so um, people would switch different types of phones, but but it was almost like their primary content account was with their carrier, um, and and carriers had made a lot of money selling ringtones, and uh, you know, if you, if you remember back in the early two thousands, carriers had made billions of dollars selling ringtones and wallpapers and 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 content like that for mobile, and so. Um, our model was to, uh, at the time, was to focus on on how to help carriers be more successful in content as the handset 
um, you know, the handset market changed. Um, and, and so that we, even though we were building consumer software, we were actually licensing it to carriers to deploy across their, um, you know, across their, their, their base. And, and at that time, the app stores didn't really exist. So getting, getting distribution on mobile was actually a really difficult thing without it. There was actually only one path, which was through the carriers for the most part on, on, on how to really get massive distribution. So yeah, and it's funny when you think back, back to that, like um, the world was just so different 10 years ago that none of that would really even make sense today. Um, so that was, that was the business model at the time. And how did you capitalize the business? We'd raised a small round of, of financing. Um, we'd raised a very, a very small um, sort of seed Series A uh, round, and it, it, it got us to, to enough of a point where we, uh, we had some, some fairly large um, global carriers on the platform in, in, in Europe and, um, and in North America as well. Um, and I think what we started to realize was we, we actually were starting to see um, the the world change in mobile. We were starting to see how things were consolidating into two platforms and how um, carriers were really losing their stronghold over over content and and you know their big asset they had was the billing system, um, but but people were increasingly starting to buy content from other sources, not from them. And so that was the point at which we started to broaden our focus and and, and actually start to focus more on on commerce and and you know other types of digital good transactions, not just content. Um, and this was, it just kind of lined up with um, with the time that Google was starting to make a really big bet in commerce themselves. Um, and they ended up acquiring us to to bolster the big, the larger bet that they were making on deals and local commerce. Well, let's talk about the, um, the M&A transaction. I mean, how, how did that happen? I mean, it, was there like a point where you guys uh, thought it would be a good a good idea to start an M&A process and and knock on the door of Google or did they come to you? How how did that happen? It started very organically. I think that as we um, uh, as we as we started selling into more and more carriers, we there was an, uh, a sort of natural discussion that came up on on partnership with with you know with Google on on their handsets and how they were thinking about content on Android, um, and so. The, the sort of discussion started there um, just around, you know, partnership and how and how they could be, you know, if and how they could be helpful uh, to us on their platform. And I think from there, um, uh, conversations just um, we, we were approaching um, having to make a decision on on taking another round of financing and, um, you know, betting betting bigger on on content and, and the platform and um because how much have you? How much did you raise uh, at that point? We, we'd only raised a, a, a few million dollars. I think okay, it was. Yeah, so it was. It was a very small amount, and we and we were at the point where we had to decide whether we were really going to sort of go after this in a big way. And, and to be honest, I think we, you know, we had some trepidation around how much mobile had been had been had had changed, and and if what we'd focused on on content, it almost felt like we would have to reinvent our business, I guess would, would be the, you know, um, like our business was working, but it, we could kind of see the changes happening with carriers. And, and in fact, I think even then we couldn't have predicted how fast things would change. So in, in hindsight, it was a very good decision for us um, uh, because the, the world changed even faster than we had predicted. Um, and and I think we we were really, this was the time at which um, Groupon was really exploding, and it felt like um, 
there was a really big opportunity in in local commerce and and again you know for me it was it was it was really following the same the same ethos that I've that I that I've always had, which is you know where, where do I feel I'm I'm really going to learn the most, and and the honest answer for me at that point was um, joining Google, um, and I and I really did feel like the you know the the vision that they painted on what they were trying to accomplish in local commerce and and you know the learnings that I had during the four years I was there was um, you know was a really incredible experience. So how big was Push Life at the time of the transaction? It was it was pretty small. Um, we were about I think just under thirty employees. So um, it, it was you know it was a, it was a fairly a fairly small team, and and most of us joined the um, the office, the Canadian Google office here in in Waterloo in in um, in Canada, and uh, and then me and and my co-founder uh, Rob. Um, Ended up moving out to Mountain View to Google headquarters, and and I ended up running a, f a few larger teams. So I ended up running the mobile commerce team uh, for for a product, and then towards the end, um, actually was part of the the launch team for Google Shopping Express, which was their their same day delivery effort in retail. And again, through through all of those things, just just ended up learning an immense amount about about local and commerce. Can imagine. And the M and A process, how long did it last from the time? The conversations went to like, hey, maybe it makes sense to explore doing a an acquisition. To the point, it was actually closed. It was it was pretty fast. Um, you know, Google Google are they're an M and A factory, so they are they are true professionals at at um, at how they handle M and A. Like, uh, I would say, you know, no games, uh, very straight up. Um, they commit to timelines. They committed to you know how uh, they outline how the process would work. It, it's interesting when you know when when companies do the difference between doing four or five acquisitions a year, and then each one of them um, feels you know one off and 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 unique. And, and sometimes you have weird dynamics um, with corp dev teams trying to sort of um, uh, over optimize for for certain results but i think the difference with companies like google is when they do hundreds of acquisitions a year um they they really turn it into a you know into a a, a mass production uh sort of you know factory and so the, the and i actually think that's great it's it's um you know it's very organized it's there's no games um they're very straight up no one it doesn't feel like anyone is you know trying to to overly optimize on a negotiation um and at the end of the day you know it, it makes a lot of sense because the the transaction is the beginning of the relationship and what you actually want is a group of people to come in and be energized and deliver a lot of value over the upcoming years and so um, you know, being, it, it's, it's a little, it's being a little bit, you know, penny wise, uh, pound foolish when, when M&A teams tried to, um, get a little too cute during the process. And, and I'd heard rumors of other companies approaching things in that way. Uh, but I would say, you know, the process with Google was, was the way you'd want it. Um, you know, really fast, very clean. Um, and, and yeah, just, uh, a, a very good first impression entering the company. Really cool. Really cool. And what were the terms of the deal? Right. Uh, the, the terms were, were unannounced, so um, uh, yeah, there, there were no, no figures announced. Got it. So you were with uh, Google then doing the what they call the vesting and resting for about three years and a half. Um, so you went to Mountain View. But one thing that, that really stood up for me is why being there where the action is happening, how do you end up in Toronto, back in Toronto? Yeah, no, and that's especially a good question. With and especially with a new company. So 
So first, walk us through how you come up with the concept and why once you're thinking about launching a company, you don't go to the, the capital of the world for launching yeah. your company, but you go somewhere else. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. Um, you know, first, to answer the first part of your question, I, um, I Google is a very... Uh, a very special and unique company. I, I think I was, um, I, I learned a tremendous amount from them. And, and to be honest, the decision to leave wasn't, um, until probably the very last month, I actually wasn't sure if, if, if I was going to leave or not. So, um, there was definitely no preconceived, um, you know, notion of when, when, when vesting ends, you know, that, that, that I would leave. Um, and in fact, there were, um, till the very last minute I was exploring interesting roles that, that would have had me, you know, maybe even stay at Google. Um, so I think it came down to, um, once again, feeling like there was, I, I'd spent a long time in local commerce and what I kind of concluded at the end was I, I cared about the space and I was, um, I was, I was, very curious and interested on how on how digital would change local commerce because it, it seemed like the one the the, the one you know massive um, uh, vertical that had been com completely insulated from technology and from digital um, and there was an attempt with Groupon on how to connect people with local businesses but but it didn't it didn't really work in the end for many reasons and so I, I was deeply interested in this problem and and really what I concluded at the end was. There were, a big company was not going just um, structurally. A big company wasn't set up to solve this problem, and I and I really believe that by the end. Um, and so, it's not that there wasn't an option to you know try to build something interesting at Google. I, I just believe that that you had you had everything working, even though even with the resources of a big company, you had everything working against you, and that's kind of why I decided that the, the right thing was um, was to try and and build this. You know, starting very small and um, you know, and ground up. Uh, to, to the question on why Toronto, um, a few reasons. One, one was that the Valley is a really interesting place. Um, on one hand, it is, as you said, it is the capital of, you know, of, of technology worldwide. But, but I think that there's there's also some really um, weird dynamics there. The the biggest one is you've got a very high concentration of very wealthy people, and they're all early adopters. And I think what that can do, so, so in my opinion, when you look at the, almost the collapse of the entire on-demand space, right? Everything from on-demand valets to cleaning services to this, you know, I mean, if, if you recall, maybe, you know, four or five years ago, this was like a category of, of, of startups, right? And, and, and it had a name, uh, you know, the on-demand space. I actually think that there was a massive false positive from the Valley because um, when you have places like Palo Alto where average household incomes are north of 2 million, um, you you can fool yourself into thinking that that there's enough people who will pay a big premium for convenience. And I think that when you look across um, average neighborhoods and cities in North America, so, you know, exclude SF in New York, um, I, I don't think that's true. And, and I think you lose sight of that in the Valley. You, you lose sight of the average person. Um, so if you're trying to build a mass market consumer product, um, it's not that, that um, I think you just have to be very careful 
on, on, on false positives that, that can come from something working in the Valley. And so I felt strongly about that, that what we were trying to build was something, um, something for the mass market and, and it wasn't for rich people. And in fact, I actually questioned at the time whether what we were trying to build would even work in the Valley because, um, you know, we, we were trying to solve a problem of people going into businesses and making that experience better of, of how you would order and pick up coffee, lunch, and potentially other things from local businesses. You know, one, one, one question I remember getting at the time from the Valley is, well, why would anyone do that when they can just have it delivered? Right. And, and I think the interesting part of that question is, um, the, the types of investors that ask that question are just so in, are, are not at all sensitive to paying a $10 delivery fee, you know, for having a, a $10 item brought to them. Like that, that doesn't seem weird to them. Um, but I think that's actually not the norm. So, so I actually questioned whether, um, what we were trying to do would even work in the Valley. And, 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 um, you know, what I concluded in the end was what mattered was it working everywhere else. And it would be nice if it worked there, but that, that wasn't the audience that we were necessarily building for. So I think that was one, one big reason. Um, I think, and, and then when we went and looked at, um, uh, you know, there's other things in terms of just the, the reality of building, you know, talent there and, and hiring and cost and a lot of those other things. And, um, and, and I think we, we, we ended up getting pretty, um, we, we couldn't have imagined what, what the, like Toronto has been on an incredible, um, an incredible pace right now for, for just technology growth. It wasn't that way five years ago when we when we started here. I think it 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 kind of has started to pick up, you know, over the last few years. But so I think we got particularly lucky choosing Toronto. It was also where I grew up, and for for a lot of reasons, it made sense. Um, but and but how, it ended up being and, a very good decision. Meet, how did you meet your co-founders as well, Ray? Um, me and my co-founders actually went to high school together. In wow. yeah, in. Um, in a suburb of Toronto where, where we grew up. And so, yeah, it's an unusual story of, uh, of us, uh, you know, being, being all being best friends and starting to build businesses together from a very early age. Uh, we, we, we tried to build our first business in, in, at the end of high school and, and, and early university and pretty much everything we, we did at that, at that point had failed. Um, but I think we, I think we got just tremendous learnings on, on, um, how to build and deploy products um, at a very early age that that ended up you know being being very useful when when we started push life so did you kind of like call them with the idea and said hey guys i'm coming home and we're doing this well they were all at they were all at google because they were they we all worked together at at, at push life so okay um and, and we did we were doing different things at google but i think we still we still ended up um you know spending a lot of time together Really cool, really cool. So what ended up really being here, the business model and, and, and the monetization strategy behind? Beyond Ritual? Yes, of Ritual. Uh, we, so so we, we look a lot like any other third party that connects um, that connects people with, you know, so if, so if you think about a food delivery company and, and the economics, you, you basically take a you know, fee on, on transactions and incremental orders that, that you drive. So um, the, the business model is the same, which is consumers, consumers don't pay, uh, you know, an, an extra fee, but we're able to drive incremental revenue to local businesses and we take a percentage of, of transactions. Uh, but because we don't have drivers and logistics, um, our fee is dramatically lower. You know, it's a third of, um, of what, 
delivery companies would charge because they have to you know pay someone else to to move things around um so so that that that's sort of the the, the business model um and you guys the, were just getting a cut of that or yeah we take a cut of of, of transactions that that we drive yeah. got it so so then what were some of the early days like what were some of the challenges that you were experiencing building this I think that we one of the things that we uh, had to prove in um, in the in the very early days the way that the way that I like to approach these types of problems is um, try to break down a very complicated problem into something simple that we can that we can quickly prove and then that gives us a lot of confidence to um, to invest heavily in solving the very complicated problem um, and and so in our in our case the problem was um, a lot of companies and a lot of venture capital has gone into trying to solve this problem, which is, um, how, you know, how, how do you how do you connect people with local businesses in a in a, in a digital way? And and some some companies try to solve this problem via loyalty. Um, you know, there, there was two or three different companies that tried this, and 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 some dollars that went into that. Other companies, uh, they, we weren't the first mobile ordering product, you know, mobile ordering, mobile order and pay product um, to launch. In fact, I would say to some degree, we're the last one. Um, you know, there were there were many that tried to do what what we tried to do ahead of us. And so, you know, some some companies tried it from the deals angle, some tried it from the mobile ordering angle, some tried it from the loyalty angle, some tried it from an in-store payments angle. So. Um, there's many different categories of, of companies, and but 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 the end result is um, they they almost all failed. Um, and you know the proof of the proof of that is that people, the way prior to Ritual, the the way that people transacted with local businesses um, was really unchanged for for you know the last fifteen or twenty years. You you, you did what you you, you did yesterday. Um, and what we believed was it wasn't a software gap. It was a, um, it what we called coverage or density, and what I mean by that is, um, what, what we sort of realized was that local is more like social than it is like SaaS, and um, it, I'll just unpack that for a second. Um, I think a lot of companies believed that if they built a good product in local, and a good product means you know it works well, it looks nice, that was enough. Um, which, which is generally how you know SaaS products work, um, but if you think about social, if you think about something like Instagram or you know or Facebook or Twitter, if if you don't, the platform can be very capable, but if you if you're not connected to anyone, then the platform has zero value, right? So it's only as good as the network that you're connected to. And what we realized about local was it was the same thing, meaning if you're in a neighborhood and there's this you know theoretically amazing product that that you know can help you save time, pay, earn rewards at, at at businesses in your neighborhood. But let's say it worked in only one out of ten businesses. That's not very useful to you, right? That that that's the equivalent of a social product that none of your friends are really on. Um, <clears throat> and so we we approached the problem differently, whereas most companies went really wide, right? They they, they focused on let's get thousands of restaurants let's get let's get a lot of businesses on the platform and in order to do that they they'd end up going really wide and and you know but to a customer what we realized was you don't care that we have a thousand businesses across the country um because you don't you don't buy from a thousand businesses across the country you buy from five restaurants that are within a within a five to seven minute walk of your office or, or where you live and and so so we kind of understood that the problem was actually 
um, at a very small scale. Um, it was it was a hyperlocal problem, um, and so we actually proved this by um, in in three months of starting the company, we 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 built a bare bones app, and we focused on not not just a city and not just a neighborhood, but we focused on a building. We said, uh, you know, we were in an office building that had three hundred people, and we said, look, if we can if we can get the 15 businesses within a five minute walk of this, of this building and build a product for these 300 people that worked everywhere, that had high coverage, can we prove that that's what makes the product sticky and causes people to use it? Um, and that's all we did. And, and it worked really, really well. Uh, we had incredible retention. Uh, we had incredible purchase frequency. You know, we saw all the things we, we'd, we'd hoped to in a very small, you know, 100-person sample size. But it so was would enough you say, to... Would you say, yeah. Ray, that on the... Because retention, I think, is, is critical. So that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy that you touched on this. And so that our listeners, especially the ones that are building marketplaces, I think that, just like you were saying, when you go local, having that liquidity in the marketplace that you're building is, is critical. Mm-hmm. And at the end, that builds retention. Because if you don't have what people are looking for, then they're never going to come back. So exactly. would you say that that liquidity is ultimately what triggered that good retention rate on your end? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, you know, um, I mean, liquidity. What, what creates liquidity in our in our marketplace is having good coverage. If if we have um, most of the businesses in a neighborhood, you know, or half of them at least, um, it the, the the product feels like it works everywhere. And the moment that happens, we we achieve liquidity. Um, and 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 yeah, I don't. I, I mean, it's not. To us, it's not even about having good retention. What we find is that it's not linear. There's a step function change. So, you know, I think what what people don't realize is, for example, if you have 10% coverage, you don't get 10% of the transactions. You get zero, right? The product's not useful. So there's almost like this binary state change where a product goes from it's not useful to it becomes useful. And 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 for us, we we know that we have to get <clears throat> a certain amount of coverage for that to happen. And, um, you know, that happens in the sort of, um, you know, 40 to 50% coverage mark is, is where we see um, that, that we start to get liquidity. And, and then we start, and then it's exponential. Once we, once we get to that point, value just starts to increase exponentially when we go from 40 to 50 to 60% coverage, for example. Because, for example, like when you guys have raised a bit of money, and, and we'll talk about that in a, bit, in a little bit, but what were some of the metrics or the metric that, let's say, VCs were the most interested in? Um, I think in businesses like this, what what it comes down to is um, is really two metrics, which is you know your your payback and your lifetime value. I, I think you know from the very earliest days, that's that's really what what mattered because local has in in our business the the margins are thin. You're you're talking about selling um, you know three dollar coffees and ten dollar lunches. So. Um, in a business like this, you have to have incredible retention because you're you're making you know pennies on 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 transactions sometimes. Um, so 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 you need to figure out a way to have very low acquisition cost so that you can and and because you're you're paying back in very small increments, you need to have you know. So if you think about it, it's a tough problem. You need to have low acquisition cost, very high purchase frequency, um, you know, in order to have reasonable paybacks. Um, on spend, and I think that was what we were able to figure out was was y- you can't make that happen at a national level. You have to break it down into cities and neighborhoods, and um, and 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 really go one neighborhood at a time, right? Which seems at first um, like it would be unscalable, 
and it seems overwhelming um, to say that you know you're going to do you're going to launch this thing in thousands of, of, of you know maybe tens of thousands of neighborhoods, um, but it's really the only way to unlock local. It's it's you know one neighborhood at a time. So so how much money have you guys raised uh, so far, Ray? Uh, so we've raised um, 120 million dollars to date. Really cool, and I mean, you have, you guys have really, really good people. Like I see, inside venture partners, Georgian partners are the ones that they were in your last round, mm -hmm. which was a Series C. Is that right? Yep, yep. So Greylock did our Series A um, out of the Valley. Uh, Insight did our B out of New York, and then Georgian is based out of Toronto, and they they did our letter C. Really cool. I mean, Greylock they are they are really unbelievable for uh, marketplaces. So shout out to them. So. So I guess, what was your strategy then in terms of like getting in front of these guys and, and closing them? You're, you're talking about um, like uh, VCs for fundraising? Yeah, how did you get in front of these guys? Because Greylock and Inside Venture Partners, I mean, we're talking about like the best of the best. Yeah. Um, you, you know, our, our my fundraising strategy, I think, is is um, has been very different than what I hear most entrepreneurs doing. And... Um, It, it it works for it works for me. Um, I, I I know very very few other people that uh, you know that that approach it in this way. So I, I don't I believe in having an ongoing conversation with with investors rather than you know I think some entrepreneurs say look I I don't spend time fundraising until I'm fundraising. I think about it differently, which is you should always be talking to investors. Um, yeah. And you know I'm always talking to the next stage of investors and trying to build that relationship. And the way I think about it is. Um, The the thing that in, investors are trying it, it comes down to trust and do they trust your judgment and and do they trust that you can do what you say you're going to do and I think that that's and I actually think if you if you um, if you're able to you know distill all of that all of that down um, on what VCs are looking for it's that one thing I think sometimes you know some entrepreneurs you know or, or there's a lot of advice that they can overcomplicate it but I think for the most part especially the later and later the stage gets investors aren't really looking to get that involved in you know in in, in your business um, they may you know especially during late stage rounds they're talking to you you know once a quarter they they, they really want to know that they can trust you and what yeah, I find it's all is about that, it's all about relationship building right I mean trust yeah. and Yeah. yeah, that's right. And, and I don't, you know, I don't even know if I would say it's about necessarily about, it, it can be about relationships, but, but I think that they need to know that you will do what you say you're going to do. And I think the problem with, is that how do you convince them of that in one or two meetings in a short time frame? Because you can, you can, you can go in and say, here's my plan and look what we've done. But it's very, it, what I find is that it's the easiest way to, to um, build that trust is over a period of months um, to say to someone, you know, here's what we're going to do in the next, in the next three months or in the next, you know, two or three quarters. And <clears throat> when they see that you followed through with that and you did what you said you were going to do, even, and even if you didn't achieve all of it, but you, you did most of it, or when you didn't, there were good reasons on why you didn't. I think that that builds more trust than anything you can really say in one meeting. Um, And and that's sort of the, the philosophy that I followed, which is why I I I'm always sort of spending time with you know with with a handful of investors, not not very broad. And, and I think that's actually equally important. Is you know these people take seats on your board. You're going to have to spend a lot of time with them. Um, you know, for me, it's never been about 
you know, the, the investor that gives us the highest valuation. It's been also about, you know, who, who, who do I want to work with and who do I want to build this company with and spend time with? And so I find that there's a, an element of that, of getting to know someone, you know, and also a good example is let's say you have a plan and, and you don't achieve that. What is that discussion like with an investor? Right. Um, and I think that those are those are very good uh, predictors of how someone's going to behave on your board. What happens when you don't achieve your plan? Um, so for all of those reasons, I, I've, I've always felt in, so in, in almost all the cases of all of our rounds, they've all come together almost organically, meaning I've had a relationship with each one of those investors for about nine to 12 months before we did the round. And when it came time for fundraising, it was a no brainer each time. So it was like very smooth, like falling into place on its own. Almost falling. Yeah. I mean, in many cases there were, you know, again, there were, you know, there were often more than one interested investor and that helps with, you know, with, 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 you know, fundraising dynamics. Um, so it was not that we, we, you know, it was not that they were necessarily the only ones, but there was only one obvious choice, I would say, you know, at each round and, and, um, you know, and, and so it, and there was enough trust that, that the process did come together quite smoothly. Got it. So how big is a ritual today? Uh, so we're, we're about 300 people globally right now. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. And then how, how do you, for example, like, like embrace culture, because you said that you're globally. So, I mean, I'm sure that different offices, different cultures, so how, how do you really, you know, are on top of that? Um, I think I think we are we we take we are we are purposeful and thoughtful about it. I think um, you know our, our part of the culture that we built here is um, I, it's hard to explain how we built it. I think a lot of it stems from the people we've hired um, and. Um, um, you know, I would say for the first 50 to, you know, the first 50 to 100 people, we didn't, we didn't pay a lot of attention to this. It was just um, hire the right types of people, focus on doing the right things, and it, and it kind of just works. Um, I think once we started to, you know, grow into the hundreds of people, um, you know, now we have a, a larger people ops team and, and, and um, you know, we're starting to just be more thoughtful about how to encourage the right behaviors because um, they don't just sometimes naturally happen. Um, and, and I think a lot of times it's not about the words, it's about weaving it through all aspects of the company. So, you know, how, how do you, um, how do you really reflect and hire based on the values that, that you say you have and, and, and the culture that you say you have? And then when people don't, um, when people are not good culture fits, but they are, you know, they are high performers, what, how, how will you deal with those types of people? Um, so, you know, I, I think, I think the way the, the change now is we have to be very intentional about it. Um, and we have to make sure that it's not words it's, we demonstrated through actions. Um, and, and that requires just being very thoughtful about it. Got it. And, and there's one question that I want to ask you here, Ray, and, and it's a question that I typically always ask the guests that, that come to the show. And that is if you, I mean, knowing what you know now, I mean, we're talking about uh, here you are, you've built uh, a couple of businesses now and, and, you know, you've been through the ups and downs and, and really learned a lot on the way. So knowing what you know at this point, if you had to, um, let's say, give yourself, your younger self, one piece of business advice before launching a business, what would that be and why? Um, I think the the... The, the main advice that I would give my younger self is, is just the attitude and approach to how to deal with failure. And 
um, I, I think when, you know, 15 years ago, um, I really viewed, and I had a, I had a lot of failure, um, you know, through, through, to university and with, with some of my earlier companies and some of them were, were really tough, um, were really, really hard learnings. Um, sometimes, you know, investing capital that, um, that had a, you know, that I didn't really have to invest, um, you know, th which had like very, you know, negative consequences in my life. And so, um, and, and at the time I, I remember when, when I'd fail at something, um, I would, I, I would just have a super negative attitude about about those kinds of things. It really did feel like failure, um, and I and I viewed it as you know a big setback and um, and be really hard on myself about it, which which was actually just very counterproductive in the end. Um, <clears throat> and I think it's taken me almost a decade to, to because I think what and it, it's unfortunate that it's taken me what I what I had to see happen was how some of those, some of my biggest and earliest failures actually became the biggest contributors to my success today. And I wouldn't have, the, the challenge is I wouldn't have believed it if you'd said it to me 10 years ago. And people probably did say it to me. Um, and, 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 I, and I just probably didn't believe them. Um, and it took, you know, it, it took fast forwarding 10 years and, and realizing that some, that, that I'm able to navigate some very complicated problems and make significantly better decisions today because of um you know the the failures that that i had before and i think that's that's had a really transformative change on on my leadership style and and how we think about failure at, at ritual um where we 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 really encourage it to some degree we we in fact we we try very hard not to not to not make it a, a bad word and to focus on on learnings and, and not failures right um where we we celebrate the learnings that come out of things not 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 working out and in fact even even for us over the last four or five years nothing we've done has worked on the first try um like all like pretty much nothing has it's it's typically taken you know two or three attempts and so i feel like i keep repeatedly you know and our team now is repeatedly learning this which is you know failure is just the the knowledge that that you gain on the path to something really working out um you know, so that's, that's a bit of a long-winded answer, but that, but, but I think I would try harder to, um, to believe that when, um, you know, when I was younger, because I think I would have, I would have been able to learn faster and better had I believed that than, than being negative and critical towards it. Really cool. I mean, I, I have to say that I agree. Uh, our biggest successes or our biggest learnings or breakthrough moments really come from from failures. I think it's either you succeed or you learn. You just got to keep it moving. So I'm I'm glad that you really touched on that, uh, Ray. So what is the best way for folks that are listening to reach out and say hi? Uh, best way is, is just via LinkedIn. I'm uh, I'm I'm pretty active there. Um, uh, or yeah, my Twitter handle is at at Raymond Reddy. Um, both of them are are good ways to reach out. Amazing, Ray. Well, it has been a pleasure to have you on the Dealmaker Show. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. No, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure, pleasure doing it. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.